Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. Well, we've got a big topic today. We are talking about coronavirus and the implications under OSHA law and employment law for you as employers and how you can go about effectuating a coronavirus response policy that complies with outstanding OSHA and employment law um, requirements. So for those of you tuning in for the first time, the OSHA 3030 is a program that we deliver via webinar as well as as a podcast about every 30 days, and we cover a new developing topic in OSHA law in about 30 minutes. We try to pick topics that are case developments, regulatory developments, statutory developments, and then phenomena like this. Uh, and we've been doing this for over seven years. We're well into our 75th-plus episode, probably around 80 episodes. All of those episodes are libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. As I said before, my name is Manish Rath. I'm with the law firm Keller & Heckman here in the very quiet town of Washington, D.C. And I'm joined today by my colleague and friend, John Gustafson. John, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Manish. Pleasure to be here. Well, John, as you know, we've got a big topic, uh, and and all of our topics, as I said before, are on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Many of them, over 75 episodes, are still very relevant, very helpful, and educational uh, to, to our members of our OSHA 3030 community, and so I encourage them to check it out. Uh, this is a program that we do for friends of the firm, clients of the firm, and it is free to our attendees. Uh, the only thing we ask is that when you get an invitation for the OSHA 3030, please forward it on to at least three other people. Even if you've already done so many times, forward it on to three new people every time you get an invitation uh, to to people inside your company as well as to other organizations, safety and health professionals, in-house counsel, uh, those responsible for, for the management of OSHA law compliance in any aspect. So with that said, John, why don't we get into what we're going to talk about today? Um, sure. <clears throat> so we're going to cover a number of topics. Um, these are topics that uh, clients have asked us about. We've heard a lot of buzz about. Um, we've looked into OSHA guidance and also compared these topics against, you know, black letter OSHA law and employment law. Um, so we're going to we're going to talk about PPE and hygiene workplace rules. Some of those are preventative. Some are uh, while in operation um, policies that employers can use or enact in the workplace. Um, those include teleworking and uh, work-from-home policies. Uh, the implications of medical testing uh, what's going on in in Congress uh, related to coronavirus and employment, and finally, excuse me, um, how you can tell that an employee employee is ready to return to duty, or uh, what steps you need to take to ensure that they are, and then other considerations for employers. So, 
in the spirit of uh, receiving these questions uh, and answering them, Manish, I'll just pose the questions to you. Um, so what, what measures has OSHA recommended in its March 9th guidance, both uh, preventative and uh, for continued operation of, uh, of uh, facilities? Well, it's a great question, John. As you said, OSHA issued a, a coronavirus guidance document on March 9th. Uh, it, it essentially identified uh, the the three control methods that it has always adhered to uh, as far as categorization, administrative controls, uh, as well as engineering controls, and and um, then then as well uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, these don't really fit perfectly in such a rapidly developing circumstance like coronavirus, and I think that they just felt that they, the quickest documents to get out was to identify these three existing uh, categories and control types. Uh, clearly, the idea of engineering controls that, to the extent that it involves ventilation, which they identified in their document, is just, it, it, to the extent that, that workplaces already have suitable ventilation um, systems put into place, that's great, but to the extent that they would have to implement anything additional beyond what they've already implemented, it's not likely that they could uh, effectuate any change by the time they have to take other responsive measures with respect to, to trying to protect the workplace from, from the coronavirus outbreak. So that really brings us down to personal protective equipment and, and uh, administrative controls, work practice controls. Uh, OSHA has suggested that certainly with respect to healthcare workers, and I think that by extension this could clearly apply to 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 emergency response workers at your site, that we were looking at uh, instances where personal protective equipment may be uh, considered relevant, things like respirators, N95 respirators, and uh, purified air respirators as well, supplied air respirators, but and the last two might be relevant where an employer can expect aerosolizing of coronavirus, such as in the instance of, of dental work. Uh, but other than in those specific aerosolized exposures, N95 respirators, according to OSHA, should suffice. But again, this is something that they've discussed in the context of healthcare kinds of exposures. In the non-healthcare context, respirators are not uh, viewed as effective or necessary as protection for employees from exposure to coronavirus. That is different, however, from saying that some kind of mask for somebody who has coronavirus might be a, a reasonable uh, inter, uh, intervention for those who are engaged in emergency response or health care. That does make sense, to pre but that is for the purpose of pre preventing the person who's coronavirus positive from expelling uh, coronavirus, contagious coronavirus. So, so that deals with PPE, and it's really more related to healthcare. For other workplaces, pretty clearly, OSHA's March 9th guidance goes into uh, a recommendation that employers engage in good uh, hygiene practices such as uh, mandates to wash hands before the beginning of every shift or 
uh, at the start of returning from every break uh, using soap and water or 60% alcohol sanitizers. And as far as work uh, practice controls, OSHA suggested sending workers home that are either at risk in accordance with CDC guidelines for high risk uh, persons or uh, those who are coronavirus positive or have symptoms that are consistent with coronavirus. Okay, I, I should point out, by the way, that there is a question and answer section in the lower left corner, and one of my dear friends has just written in with a question. This subject, for this particular episode of the Ocean 3030, we're not likely to be able to get to questions. The questions and answers that we style that we've set up today is really the culmination of a lot of the questions that we have gotten from clients or when we've participated in dialogue with um, with the employer community. If you have questions that aren't covered in today's program, in the interest of time, I'd, I'd encourage you to contact us directly afterwards, and we'd be happy to try and, and work through those. Okay, so let's move on. I guess the next question, John, that we're getting is is about uh, workplace rules that, that can be implemented by employers. That's right. I know we've seen a number of uh, – uh, gathering size numbers bandied about uh, different l levels of government, different organizations, but what has OSHA and uh, the CDC said on these? Have they, have they put out uh, specific limitations or recommendations? Well, so that's a great question, John, and, and we were getting it a lot. And uh, I'll suggest to all of you listening that you're coming in from uh, over 50 different jurisdictions when you consider municipalities as well as state. Uh, governors have issued at the state level uh, certain proclamations and as well the federal government. Uh, I know that the White House issued a statement that they advise that gathering, mass gatherings of 250 people or more, uh, and, I, and this came from the CDC's March 15th, uh, revision to its guidelines as well, that mass gatherings of 250 people or more uh, should be canceled and that any gathering of 10 people or more for organizations that serve higher risk populations, they recommend canceling. Uh, at the state level and at, at the municipal level, mayors and governors have each issued their own uh, either mandatory prohibitions or recommendations, and they've uh, varied anywhere from 25 gatherings in excess of 25 people up to 1,000 people, and these are changing with uh, quite a great deal of rapidity. So so I think that it's important to consider the, the local and state restrictions for your various facilities or establishments. In general, however, you may, in addition, implement a workplace rule that is more restrictive than any of the local, state, or federal restrictions that are in place right now. Uh, or you may alternatively implement telework requirements and you can simply send workers home where telework is not feasible for their job description. You can send them home on unpaid leave. Uh, you may also implement shifts where you request that employees come in in different shifts so to spread them out. Uh, these suggestions are not going to work for all workplaces. Many workplaces, by their very nature, telework is not achievable. For example, manufacturers. 
you need people in the factories to be uh, producing. And so, so spreading them out, extending production lines, uh, or putting them in different ships, alternating production lines on different ships are options that you might consider. Other than that, uh, the next best thing you can do is to implement good hygiene control, wiping down equipment, wiping down shared equipment uh, for between ships, et cetera. So, so those are the workplace rules that you can implement, and they're all permissible under existing guidances. Right. So, Manish, you just touched on a couple policies that um, employers can implement in the in light of those, and the also the absence of feasible engineering controls. What other administrative controls or policies has OSHA recommended? or that we can recommend? OSHA's, uh, certainly their March 9th guidance, they suggested that employers, and, and they start from the position that although there's no specific standard on point, that the general duty clause imposes a requirement for all employers to maintain a workplace that is free of safety and health hazards so far as is achievable. And uh, growing out of that general duty that all employers have, under the Occupational Safety and Health Act, uh, OSHA has recommended sending sick workers home, workers who are symptomatic, uh, workers who are in high-risk categories as defined by the CDC, and to keep, keep them at home. And we'll talk about the length of time uh, in a moment, but also suggested to dis that employers discontinue non-essential travel and to either recommend or mandate regular hand washing and uh, cleaning with equipment and to wash hands after removing PPE. Removal of PPE, for those who use PPE and have been trained, you'll know there's a, a specific protocol for proper removal, and at the end of all of that, it requires washing hands again. Uh, these are the kinds of administrative controls that you'll find in OSHA's March 9th guidance uh, to the extent that, again, as I said before, to the extent that, that sending workers home is not possible based on your own operations. OSHA has suggested uh, spreading workers out either by different shifts or by space, time of space. Uh, and and one of the things you can do is expand the number of shifts, alternate uh, production lines, spread out a production line so that workers are, are spread out. If, if you find that they are working more than six feet from each other, the CDC has suggested that that is uh, a minimum safe distance for prolonged periods of time. Uh, but, but secondarily, there are two two transmission routes at least, and only one of them is airborne. The other is uh, theoretically from from hard surfaces. So, wiping down work surfaces, tools, equipment, keyboards, phones, doorknobs, elevator buttons, etc., is clearly going to be a part of a good practice for those employers whose employees must continue returning to the workplace such as manufacturers, distribution, et cetera. So I think much of our audience is familiar with OSHA's recording obligations generally, uh, but how do those apply to uh, COVID-19 positive employees? So we've been getting that question as well, and I notice in the lower corner under the question and answer section there's a question to that effect as well. Uh, so I'm happy to introduce that to our dialogue as well. As you all may know, and as we've covered many times in varying aspects of it, the 
OSHA standard for occupational injury and illness record keeping arises out of Section 1904 of the federal regulations. And essentially, it requires that uh, an injury or illness must be recorded in a log called the Form 300, and uh, that, that the requirement is uh, triggered when there's a work-related injury or illness and that that the outcome is recordable. In other words, it's more than just first aid. Uh, it results in treatment other than just first aid. Uh, a day or more away from work, restricted duty, fatalities, etc. So, so if you meet the criteria for what is recordable, a recordable event, and it's work-related, and the specific case of coronavirus is con a confirmed case of coronavirus rather than a suspected case or somebody who has symptoms that are uh, akin to or uh, similar to or suggest the possibility of coronavirus, then that event would be recordable. The difficulty, of course, is in the second question, which is what constitutes work-relatedness. Uh, I think it's safe to say that it's the very nature of, of coronavirus contamination that it's difficult to know where a person got uh, their, their case of coronavirus, and if it's unknown, then I don't think that it's recordable per se. Uh, OSHA has suggested, I've heard, that if there was a known case of coronavirus, of a positive uh, confirmed, uh, lab, laboratory confirmed case of coronavirus in the workplace, then another employee comes down with and is confirmed to be coronavirus positive, that OSHA believes that there's a presumption of work-relatedness. Uh, Although that's different from whether or not OSHA can establish work-relatedness in enforcing a, a violation for a failure to record. Uh, if the exposure is known to have occurred outside of work, but the manifestations of symptoms occur at work, that does not make the case recordable. That is pretty clear. There are other issues related to recordability. There are other issues related to self-reporting for hospitalizations uh, involving uh, fatalities, etc., uh, or fatalities, I should say, and and we can get into those if anyone has any questions when that comes up. Uh, but but to begin with, it's helpful, I think, for employers to consider that there has to be a laboratory confirmed case of coronavirus, that the coronavirus case has to be work related, and if it's unknown or known to have occurred out, the exposure is known to have occurred outside of work, then it is not recordable and that it has to meet a recordable criteria like treatment or days away from work or restricted duty. So OSHA promulgated a bloodborne pathogen standard some time ago. I think it was 1991. Uh, does that apply in these circumstances to this virus? And if not, um, does it at least provide some guidance for employers? I, I think that in the healthcare, that's a great question, John. I think in the context of the healthcare as a sector, it, it may provide some helpful guidance. Uh, in, in its March 9th guidance, OSHA acknowledges that, that COVID-19 is not a bloodborne pathogen. It's not transmitted in the same manner as bloodborne pathogens or other infectious, potentially infectious materials that are covered under the bloodborne pathogen standard. And so, so employers are not expected to comply with the bloodborne pathogen standard with respect to COVID-19. Uh, 
it nevertheless uh, notes the agency in its March 9th guidance that that the standard provides some helpful framework for employers to develop uh, practices and procedures for the control of COVID-19 in the workplace. But again, when you look at those control procedures spelled out in the standard, I would think that most of them would be generally more applicable to the healthcare industry and not to general industry. So, so although universal precautions may be helpful with the context of uh, wiping things down, hand washing, et cetera, it certainly would not with respect to personal protective equipment, again, in general industry. We've looked at some administrative policies, um, but with regards to sending workers home and leave specifically, uh, what can can employers do and what should they be doing? Yeah, this is the question, I think, for most employers. Uh, when The first thing I'd say is it's important for employers to rely on and, re and refer to the CDC guidelines for businesses as to when an employer should send workers home. Sending a worker home is distinct from sending them home on paid leave, unpaid leave, telework, et cetera. So the first question I think an employer has to ask is, is this a case to send an employer home? Here we're talking about workplaces where telework is not practical. Uh, manufacturers or other industries where cu customer-facing uh, employees are, are mission critical. So in those cases, sending a worker home will only happen when it's in the interests of furthering the general duty clause or in the interests of the health of the workplace generally or, or of the rest of the workers. Uh, in those cases, again, following CDC guidelines as to when to send somebody home, the only question remaining I should say the next question should be whether or not this is to be considered paid leave or unpaid leave. And for uh, non-exempt or exempt workers, whether that is paid or unpaid for fractional weeks under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So, so an employer may send an employee home in furtherance of its coronavirus control plan if an employee is uh, under any of the high-risk categories as defined by the CDC being symptomatic or being a caregiver with prolonged exposure, unprotected exposure to uh, somebody who's had a laboratory-confirmed case or having come from one of the localities where uh, the CDC has designated them as high risk. Uh, in those cases, an employer may send their employee home and may do so and may mandate the use of accrued leave. Once that leave is exhausted, an employer may require an employee to still stay at home uh, through use of unpaid leave. The Family and Medical Leave Act wouldn't necessarily apply to protect a physician, although employers may choose to protect that person's position uh, if, if uh, they, they so choose. They may develop that policy specifically for the coronavirus outbreak. But the requirements for the Family and Medical Leave Act would still have to be met for an employee to enjoy those protections. Three days or more and 50 employees at an establishment that the employee has to have been there for a year and 1,250 hours at the federal level. But again, the employer may nevertheless choose to protect an otherwise unprotected employee under that act for their ability to be restored to their job at the end of the time period that the employer has sent them home. 
So the next question is if an employee is sent home uh, and has worked a partial week or experiences a partial work week absence, uh, if they're under the Fair Labor Standards Act not exempt, that may result in uh, the loss of pay if their leave has been exhausted. Uh, for exempt employees, I would encourage employers to treat their pay on a salary basis for partial work week uh, absences. Uh, but, but the next question, I think, for all of these employees is it may be that these employees are being sent home for a period longer than a week or even longer than a pay period. Uh, and so the next question, I think, to ask is how long should they be sent home? And we'll, we'll certainly discuss that before we conclude this program. Well, and a lot of these um, employers, for the first time, are having a, a large number of their employees telework. So what should they be thinking about um, when they developed or adopt a policy for telework? Well, certainly it, there's a lot of uh, statutory considerations. The Fair Labor Standards Act suggests that um, employees, you, you should maintain a strict policy for clocking in, clocking out, uh, and recording of time worked, when, even when an employee is teleworking. And that means that supervisors need to be careful when giving uh, assignments by email or text or phone calls that might be outside of traditional hours to make sure that employees know that that should be clocked as well, that should be recorded, so that an employee may may um, enjoy the benefits of the overtime protections of the Fair Labor Standards Act should they exceed 40 hours in a regular work week. Uh, for employers who have a regular uh, pre-existing telework policy, I would just simply refer to that telework policy. And for those who haven't, and needs to implement a telework practice for this coronavirus outbreak, I think that you should develop a written policy that covers use of equipment, uh, time entry practices, uh, the employer's expectation for maintaining productivity, et cetera, and, and when, when the employer will be expected to come back from the telework practice once the coronavirus outbreak has passed. And if if you don't intend to reestablish an ongoing telework policy after that, it should be clear on the face of your uh, telework policy that's been developed strictly as a coronavirus response. Uh, then I think it's it's clear that going back to whether an employer sends employees home or whether an employer sends people home for telework purposes, that that there there needs to be some reporting of symptoms so that the employer can effectively manage the recommendations established by the CDC. Uh, so, so employees should be expected to self-report any symptoms that, that are consistent with coronavirus. And that's the only way I think that an employer can responsibly trigger its telework or send people home policies. John, did that cover that question, do you think? I think so. I think so. We got a lot there. Um, so, what has Congress been doing about coronavirus with respect to leave, uh, employee leave specifically? Yeah, I wanted to make sure. Thank you for asking that. I wanted to make sure that everyone was up to date on what's going on on the Hill. Uh, the House of Representatives uh, has has proposed and passed a bill, I believe. The, the name of the bill is the Families First Coronavirus Act. Uh, it's H.R. 6201, and what it proposed, amongst many other things, was, uh, as relates to employment, 
was that employers with under 500 employees must give FMLA leave to employees if they've been employed for 30 days or more, whereas traditionally the threshold for eligibility is that an employee must have been employed for one year and have worked 1,250 hours during that time. And many of you know that if you have establishments in states with uh, state FMLAs that those thresholds are in some cases less. In addition to Columbia, for example, it's an employee has been working for a year or 1,000 1, hours. Uh, New Jersey, California, uh, between nine and 13 states have state FMLAs. Uh, so at the federal level, that threshold is one year and 1,250 hours. The House of Representatives has proposed a lowered threshold of 30 days or more of employment in order to be eligible for FMLA for the purposes of uh, coronavirus-related absences. They've, they've also recommended that – the House of Representatives recommended that employers with less than 500 employees provide employees with 80 hours of paid sick leave – if an employee has to, for, for a number of qualifying circumstances, I'll identify three of them, an employee who must be at home because of a confirmed COVID-19 diagnosis to care for someone who has COVID-19-like symptoms, not necessarily a confirmed diagnosis, to comply with the recommendation or order of a public official. So in the case, for example, that a mayor sends everybody home except for essential uh, industries, that that the 80-hour paid sick leave would kick in. And to the extent that a person has to be at home because a school system is closed, I understand the last I looked that easily 70% of all school systems have closed for some period of time. Uh, in some extreme cases, I can't think Kansas might be on the leading edge of this. The state of Kansas has closed for the rest of the school year, uh, although that other systems may catch up eventually. Uh, in those cases, an employee under the proposed bill would get – employees would get 80 hours of paid sick leave. So this is passed uh, in the House of Representatives. It moved on to the Senate. It went to a Senate vote, and my understanding is it did not pass uh, when proposed to the Senate. So it remains to be seen whether or not there will be any uh, negotiating between the Houses to reconcile any differences. Uh, House spokesfolk have said – that it would be difficult for them to get uh, representatives back to the House of Representatives to vote again should there be any changes because they've all, or many of them, or most of them have gone back to their districts and travel is impractical at this stage. Uh, so, so this is a, an open question, but it deserves to be monitored carefully for those of you who may be impacted. So, uh, wanting to be diligent and protective, many employers uh, have sought to implement uh, symptom checks. Is, are there implications for those checks under the law, and should employers uh, implement those those checks? So we've gotten a few questions like this, John, and it's a good question. And uh, there's a few sources out there. Uh, that that employers can look to. The, the March 9th guidance from OSHA is the place that I personally start with. Again, arising out of the general duty clause, OSHA has said in its March 9th guidance that employers must engage in prompt identification and isolation of potentially infectious individuals. 
and they consider this, again, prompt identification of potentially infectious individuals as a critical step to protect all of the other workers. So at that starting point, employers, I think, should consider whether or not taking temperature readings for employees is, first of all, going to be effective in identifying employees who are potentially inf infectious, and second of all, whether or not it is um, prudent for the employer itself to take that temperature reading or whether to engage a healthcare provider. I would suggest that unless you have an occupational nurse on staff that a third-party vendor is the better route for trying to conduct this kind of activity. I'd also suggest that the CDC guidelines should be the uh, guiding documents or force for employers. I note that the CDC has suggested that employee, a person is potentially infectious well before they're symptomatic, and thus I would posit that, that my understanding of that statement is that elevated temperature is at best a lagging indicator of an employee's potential infectivity. And if that's so, an employer certainly may uh, consider whether or not temperature will help guide its decisions for sending workers home, or what OSHA refers to as isolating, uh, but that it may not be a timely uh, intervention uh, after all. I would also point out that if you don't have an occupational nurse or you're an employer that is not otherwise uh, obliged to comply with the HIPAA medical privacy rule because you're not a medical uh, provider or a medical carrier, uh, under the HIPAA rule, then taking temperatures may trigger that duty, provided that you are now possessed of medical data. Uh, the last thing I'd note is there's a, a EEOC guidance that came out in 2009 uh, relating to the Americans with Disabilities Act that was published in the advent of the H1N1 virus, and it's, it's about the Americans with Disabilities Act and in the context of pandemics. I should point out that when it was published, with the outbreak of H1N1, that was not a pandemic for the purposes of the EOC guidance. So they were speculating about a future possible uh, pandemic, and we're certainly in that circumstance now. Uh, but they suggested that temperature readings would be, in the context of a pandemic, a reasonable um, intervention, notwithstanding the ADA's prohibition on medical exams in other contexts. One obscure comment in that guidance of notes that I've been advising clients on is to take note of the uh, inset box on that document that suggests that if there is an actual pandemic, that employers should follow CDC guidelines and use best available and appropriate practices at the time in order to respond to the pandemic. I'm not saying that gives you a carte blanche to ignore the Americans with Disabilities Act, but on matters where common sense indicates that a step is effective in protecting the rest of your workplace, certainly the ADA considerations are secondary to the OSHA consideration to maintain a safe and healthful workplace, and that it seems to me that guidance acknowledges that, or is the EEOC's acknowledgement of that fairly common sense approach. So, Manish, when do we know that symptomatic workers can resume their duties? So this is the last question we should handle, and it's one of the most complex ones uh, before we break uh, for today. But for those of you who have asked questions in the lower quarter, uh, if you want, we are happy to try and deal 
with your questions one-on-one. -on -one. Many of you, your questions are particular to your workplace, and what we're trying to achieve here is uh, some general guidance for OSHA compliance, employment law compliance. Uh, so if you have particular questions, we're happy to try and field them uh, for any client or, or potential client that's listening in at the moment. Uh, with that said, John, your question is, well, so I've sent a worker home. How do I know when they can come back? Uh, I don't believe that the CDC's guidances, after scouring them, are crystal clear for businesses as to how long you can send an employee home or should send them home. I will note that the CDC has said the one clear time frame that the CDC has identified is that if a, an employee comes from a high-risk area or has been a caregiver for somebody with COVID-19 symptoms or a positive COVID-19 diagnosis, confirmed diagnosis, that that they'd be a high-risk employee and uh, that that they should be isolated for 14 days to see if symptoms materialize. So this is what I'd call an elimination period. This is not a COVID-19 positive person. This is a person who you want isolated for 14 days to see if any symptoms materialize. That's not really to the question, though, of if I have a confirmed coronavirus positive employee, I send them home, how long do I keep them away from the workplace before I permit them to return? And in the absence of guidance, I would suggest that the common sense approach should be at the minimum to rely on the CDC's 14 days so that uh, if a person is, is symptomatic and a confirmed case of coronavirus positive, I would say 14 days after the last symptom or the cessation of symptoms, it to me seems like the one number that I can relate to to try and form a clear minimum elimination period for somebody who's coronavirus positive and has now ceased to exhibit all symptoms. There are a number of studies out there. Wuhan, the Wuhan studies involved large populations. Most of them, I understand, were severe cases. As I read the literature on those studies, there were severe cases, there was a large population studied, and that there was detectable uh, coronavirus presence uh, in samples, patient samples, as late as uh, 10 to 20 days after cessation of symptoms. Uh, another study in Germany was just published on Monday, a very small study, only nine patients. They had mild symptoms, and it was suggested that after 10 days, there was, although there were some instances where there was detectable coronavirus, the authors concluded that infectivity was not likely. But again, that puts the employer in a situation of debating as between those two studies whether you are looking at a patient with severe symptoms or mild symptoms. That is not, there's no metric that I can offer you to, to categorize mild and severe. I would merely offer to you that on account of that, after the cessation of symptoms, I would go to the CDC's guidance about 14 days for the elimination period for those who are or previously CDC high-risk category individuals. Uh, so not a clear subject. Studies are still being conducted, and this is a, a relatively new area with little guidance, and I would say the employer is probably going to be better off safe than sorry when you think that it's currently thought that a person is coronavirus positive has the potential to infect between two and ten other people. That's better safe than sorry on that particular individual 
uh, keeping them out longer will be the most protective for the rest of your workplace and thereby for your production and operations. So, so that's, I think, the last question for today's Ocean 3030. We've gone a little bit over time. More news, generally speaking, can be caught from our Keller and Heckman OSHA team on Twitter, at Rathmonish. This program will be republished as a podcast, as have the past OSHA 3030s for the past few years. So if you listen to podcasts, please subscribe to the OSHA 3030 on your favorite podcast streaming service like iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud. We're now even on Spotify. Uh, and please connect with all of us on LinkedIn, Monish Rath, David Savati, Larry Halpin, you, John Gustafson, John, uh, Javanay Nakumaran, as well as the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health uh, LinkedIn page. Uh, our next OSHA 3030 will be at 1 p.m. on April 22, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern. And you can catch more information about that at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030, along with our prior slides and, and audio in conjunction. Uh, here are the dates for our TOSCA 3030, REACH 3030, and FIFRA 3030, May 13th for TOSCA and, and REACH. Uh, we hope you catch those if you're in a business practice that is regulated by those statutes. And uh, we're grateful to all of you for participating. We had a, a really large turnout from all over the world today. I can understand why. Uh, when you get the invitation for the next Social 3030, please remember to forward it on to three more people in your organization and at other organizations. Until we see you again next month, I hope you all stay safe. Bye.